This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There's lots of talk these days. You have probably heard it. Some of you may have been involved in it. Some of you may have begun to enact it. There is lots of talk about an American boycott by Canadians. We should boycott American products. Products. If Donald Trump is going to put tariffs and extra costs on our goods, we are going to not buy American. We are going to buy Canadian every chance we get. We are going to not fly down to the States. We are going to not buy anything that's got a stars and stripes on it. Everything is going to be maple leaf purchased. Now, this is not the first time something like this has ever happened. There have been other times when we've been angry at someone, and it may have been American. It may have been French. Remember after 9-11 when we wouldn't eat French fries? We had freedom fries instead because the French were not going to get involved with the fight against the terrorists. Remember that, right? Well, we sometimes get upset and we do these kind of things, but do they work? Will they work? If we do this, if a bunch of Canadians say, I'm not buying any American products, is this going to have any kind of impact? Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is a professor in food distribution and policy at the Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University. He is a friend of the show. We've had him on a number of times before. Always enjoy having him on. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. No problem. So here's the thing. I see this picture the other day on social media, and it goes right to the heart of this. It was a, it was a display from a Canadian supermarket, and on one half of the display was French's ketchup, which is Canadian, and it is nearly cleaned out. People have bought nearly all the French's ketchup from the display, and next to it is the display of Heinz ketchup, and it is untouched. And I'm thinking, wow, people are really taking this buy Canadian, don't buy American thing seriously. Until I looked at the prices, and then it was two dollars and forty-nine cents for the French's and four forty-nine for the American, and I thought, well, are they, or is this just a money thing? I don't understand if this kind of thing works. <laughs> we get patriotic with food uh, sometimes, uh, depending on what's going on uh, uh, in the world. We often take positions, and uh, and food becomes uh, a weapon, uh, a a. a um, a tool to communicate our frustration, uh, to send out a message. And uh, this is what's happening. Uh, there's a campaign going on, which is actually quite um, appropriately timed, given that we're just days away from, from July 1st, which is likely the most patriotic time of year. And, uh, yeah, uh, Mr. Trudeau decided to be very polite, very diplomatic at the G7, and and Mr. Trump basically destroyed him uh, through social media. But Canadians have other plans, and uh, and the one the one way they actually uh, do it is to basically go in stores and, and buy Canadian. But it's not it's not that simple. Well, the, first of all, the, the idea is simple because food is something we have to buy all the time. So it's a real easy one to set our targets on. Correct? Yeah. No, absolutely. And uh, but. The, the reality is that uh, people do go out and buy food, uh, but they're always look, they, they always look for the price, the best price possible, uh, good quality at, at the best price, which means, well, best price. <laughs> and uh, and, and the, the issue that really comes up often is, uh, is what we call the cupboard economics. Uh, people, when they're surveyed or they're asked, uh, they're, they, they often trade up. Uh, in a way, they, they'll buy organic, they'll buy fair trade, they'll buy local, they'll buy all sorts of different products that may cost more. But when, when it's time to actually uh, take action, when they show up in the store, they will 
most of the time select what's cheapest and they'll go home they'll put their product behind doors of a cupboard and no, so nobody can see it because you can't really raise uh, your own social status if you buy IN ketchup <laughs> or IN <laughs> mustard you know but a car would work or a house would work but not food you can't use food to raise your social status and and that's why we call it cupboard economics just something it's wishful thinking but the willingness to buy any products really boils down to the best price often well and let me go back to how i started this then because we have this display in the supermarket and it looks very patriotic because the canadian ketchup is basically gone and the american ketchup is untouched and if they were both 350 let's say you would i would say then yeah you know what people are really doing what they believe in but when it's $2 cheaper, when it's 50% off for the Canadian one, I don't know that that actually says that people are being philosophical or being patriotic or if they're just being smart. I wonder if the, if the prices had been reversed, would the Heinz be the one that was halfway gone? And I tend to believe yes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you could argue that the person taking care of that aisle in terms of uh, the inventory is doing a great job with the Heinz one versus <laughs> the French's one. <laughs> But we don't know, right? We only rely on one picture. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's great that we see a patriotism affect consumer behavior in food. It has happened in the past. Uh, if, you, if you remember Mad Cow back in 2003, 35 different countries around the world decided to boycott Canadian beef. And in 2003, Canadians rallied behind the cattle industry and, and decided to to buy a lot of beef. In fact, it was Canada became the first country in the world to see its beef sales go up after declaring its first native case of of BSC mm. of Mad Cow. Imagine. So we we can get very periodic, but that that momentum lasted for about nine months, and then be ba- and, and then sales dwindled again. The crisis itself lasted more than two years. Dr. Charlebois, you have written, uh, and I want you to explain this a little bit, although some people may find this very simple, but just in case, uh, you've written that when barriers or tariffs go into place, when they're erected, food inflation prices go up. Why? Uh, because there's less supply, essentially. Trades uh, do exist for a reason. It gives us more choice more competition, and competition actually leads to lower prices uh, often. Um, Think of supply management. We've been talking a lot about supply management uh, with milk, poultry, and eggs in this country. It's it's a very powerful system uh, in that it actually provides very, very consistent prices all the way through the entire year. Uh, but if you actually look at the average prices that we have versus the United States, uh, usually you'll find that our products are much higher priced than uh, what you can find in the U.S. That's really what happens when you don't necessarily rely much on trades. Okay, so if we then say that if we're going to have barriers now, we're going to have tariffs, and so prices are going to start to go up, you've studied this a lot. What are the chances that Canadians, if even if they have every good intention to make this point, to stick with Canadian products, if prices are going up already and so the cost of your grocery basket is going to be up, what are the chances they're going to be willing to pay even more on top of that to make their point with Canadian products? So if you're um, alluding to tariffs that are going to be implemented in, the, in a few days, 
10% uh, at wholesale, I don't think it's going to make much of a difference, to be honest. Canadians won't notice, and it's not compromising uh, the food security or food security for, for families in Canada. The, 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 the concern that I have is whether or not the situation will, will escalate. And if it does, we may find uh, tariffs uh, going up 25%, for example. And then probably at that level, we're going to start seeing some of the product coming from the U.S., uh, to become more expensive, but I'll, I'll I'll be very honest with you. Right now, my biggest concern is the Canadian dollar. I mean, the Canadian dollar right now is at a year low. It could drop even further, and if that's the case, then uh, importers will be forced to renegotiate terms, and will likely to pay. will have to pay more to import foods coming from well anywhere in the world, including the United States. My understanding and expertise in economics uh, pretty much consists of a simple understanding of supply and demand. And so I'll go from there. If the, all those things happen, and so we have more reliance on Canadian goods, would I be overly cynical to suggest that some Canadian growers and food sellers would say, hey, here's the chance to raise our prices a little bit and enhance our profits? It, of course, absolutely. If, if the market is captive, why not? Uh, it's always good for our local economy. But let's face it, we're only 37 million people in one of the largest countries in the world. We don't have any population density except for maybe the GTA and Vancouver and, and the island of Montreal. That's about it. We're pretty dispersed. So we're, we're at a disadvantage. Uh, if, if there's a true trade war going on between Canada and the U.S., uh, I mean, everyone will lose, but we have more to lose than the biggest biggest economy in the world, which is the United States. Yeah, where, okay, and again, it may be obvious, but where do we lose out then? Where are the areas of food that suddenly we're going to have a lot of people, if this goes on, saying, you know what, I'm just going to have to not buy that anymore? Where are the big ones? Well, I, I say that in the produce section, I mean, you're likely going to find a lot of products we do import, uh, at the center of the store, uh, a lot, uh, lots of processed uh, products are coming from uh, different places around the world, uh, and that's pretty much it. Well, in, in, in fish, seafood, and uh, in meat products, uh, most, most of it actually comes from Canada. So if you feel patriotic over the next few days, uh, stick to the meat counter, uh, go into the produce aisle and look for that Canadian uh, label, and that's pretty easy because they're, they're, these these products are on process, and if that's easy to find the, the country of origin. And uh, fish, uh, you'll probably find a lot of fish coming from Canada as well, but and that's about it. So uh, that that limits your diet, my friend. <laughs> well, just before just before I let you go, if we have Canadians now that are making this case, and if there's any kind of groundswell. Again, you've studied this a lot. Would you expect that Canadian companies are going to change their packaging in any way to make the maple leaf, make the Canadian symbol more obvious so people are more likely to have it right in front of their face and say, oh, that's Canadian, I better buy that? Well, it did happen with the ketchup wars, so why not with this one? And frankly, I don't think it's, 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 not, I don't think it's going to end anytime soon. This, is, this may last for a while. Uh, Mr. Trump actually has, uh, as, as a focus, uh, his uh, trade policies are pretty clearly laid out. Right now, he's, he's after China, but he'll come back to North America and we'll start dealing again with Canada and Mexico. So this is not going to go away. But let's face it, uh, 
Donald Trump is a short-term problem. He's a distraction. We have long-term issues in Canada when it comes to trades. They're relying on the U.S. and the U.S. alone is just not a good idea. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University, professor in food distribution and policy. Always love having you on. Thanks for your time again tonight. All right. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. We now know the date. We know that October 17 is going to be the date in Canada that recreational marijuana, recreational cannabis is going to be legal across this country. And that has led to some people celebrating. We've all seen the pictures that are taken of the guy or woman on Capitol Hill with a doobie the size of a baseball bat that they've lit up because, you know, no police officer apparently charges them anymore for that kind of stuff. That's okay. Uh, we know, and that's going to be legal now, so whatever it is. Uh, so this has led to some celebration of the new freedom that people are going to have, that there's not going to be criminal elements around or criminal charges potentially around possessing marijuana. That said, not everybody is celebrating. Not everybody is totally thrilled with this concept. In fact, some people are a little concerned with where this may go or what this could mean, which leads to the question, is it a good thing on balance? It is certainly the fulfillment of a campaign promise, but is it a good promise? Is it a good thing for us? Well, you're going to have your opinion. Dr. Antoine Kenemaguere is the author of 21 Unspoken Truths About Marijuana. He joins us now. Uh, Doctor, thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you for having me, Scott. I, a lot of people, as I say in the beginning, a lot of people are feeling quite happy about this. They're feeling good about this. I don't know what the percentage is, but there's a fair number who are. Uh, I am guessing, though, based on the title of your book, I'm guessing you're not necessarily right at the front line of those who are celebrating this new law. Yeah, actually, um, as a medical professional, when this law, uh, when they started to prepare the law or the process of legalization started about two or three years ago, uh, we started to get a lot of questions about, about you know, from, from the people we meet in the ER, the people we meet in our clinics, uh, colleagues, friends, about the substance. You know, what is, what is cannabis? What does it do? What can it really do to your brain? So in that context, I started to think about, you know, uh, about how uh, to respond to questions uh, of these people. So... I, I wouldn't say I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a group of people who are excited or not excited. I'm really in the group of people who who are thinking about what to do next. Uh, so I I, uh, I wrote this book in that spirit of sharing and in the spirit of trying to create awareness about the substance, about the potential risks that may be associated with recreational marijuana use. So uh, I'm here to share. I'm here to think about what's next, how it can affect people. And as a medical professional, uh, how can I help? Well, Okay, and yet at the same time, we have been told very often by very many people, and I, I don't know if the government has said it in so many words, but certainly uh, led this way, that cannabis, recreational cannabis, is essentially harmless. Is that not true? That's not true. Actually, cannabis 
may be, might be harmless for some people. Uh, some people might take it without being harmed by it. But when you think about it, there is about 9 to 11% of the people who would go, uh, who would fall into addiction. And for these people, life would not be the same, living with uh, a, a cannabis use disorder, which is another term to say cannabis abuse or cannabis addiction. And this number of people who, got, who, get, who might get addicted to cannabis if almost doubles for teenagers. Teenagers are at an increased risk of addiction when they try cannabis. So the risk goes to about 17%. That's one out of six teenagers who use cannabis who risk to fall into addiction. So this is already a major problem. Is that is that an accepted number by most doctors? Because I've heard many people say that cannabis has no addictive qualities. Oh yeah, that's what a lot of people would say online. Or but if you if you consult all medical ad- associations or psychiatric associations, this is the number that we really agree on upon because it's documented in many, many studies that this uh, risk exists exactly. Uh, the, the risk of addiction is real. Is it, is it a, and it's even worse for teenagers and the young adults. Is it a chemical addiction in the way that a cigarette would be because of the nicotine or is it a psychological addiction? I mean, do, is it the same thing as a cigarette? It, it, it's both. It's both exactly. The cigarette is most is one of the most addicting substances. So cannabis is probably less addictive than nicotine, but it still is addictive. So, uh, so it needs to be really considered here. If somebody is at risk of addiction, it can be it can be. Uh, something they they should consider before uh, trying this substance. Have you had people suggesting that you are being alarmist about this? Because again, there's a lot of people who are saying this is no different than drinking a beer, and therefore someone who would come out and say that there are potential problems with this must be, uh, you know, the old, it was the reefer madness idea before, or someone who was, have you had people say, you're just, you're making too much out of this? Oh, I guess, yes. <laughs> Some people will say, oh, why are you talking about this? This is, some, this, is some, this is a substance that is being legalized because it's harmless, because it, it has no side effects. But uh, I tried just to, to stick on the facts, the facts, the scientific facts that we have. And if you, if you consult the, 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 the psychiatric associations, the Quebec Psychiatric Association, Canadian Psychiatric Association, they all have, uh, they have uh, papers suggesting the same fact. So it's not something we, that is made up. It's something that is documented in studies. It's something that is uh, supported by scientific studies published in most prestigious scientific journals in the U.S., Canada, or U.K. So this is very, very rare. And I'm not here to alarm. I'm just here to warn. Again, as I say, I wrote this book thinking about people, thinking about this 19-year-old girl, college student, who might be very excited about cannabis being legalized. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Doctor, just before the break, you were saying the example of the 19-year-old college student who now can say, oh, look at this, I can get this and I can do this. 
much of what I've heard about the concerns about marijuana is not necessarily for the 35-year-old guy who may decide he wants to use it. It's for the 20, 21, 22, 23-year-old young person because apparently, as I understand it, there is plenty of scientific research that says the under or not quite developed brain yet is susceptible to problems by heavy use of marijuana. What is the problem? What are the problems that can happen there? Yes, actually. So what do we know about the development of the brain, for example? We know that it develops until the age of 25. And some some studies even suggest that it can go until the age of 30 for some people. So when you take cannabis, it's going to interfere with the development of the of, of some parts of your brain, especially the crucial parts called prefrontal cortex. This is a part in front of your brain. That, is, that develops later in life during the young adulthood, like 2020 20 to 20 to 25 or even later. So when you take cannabis, it's going to, 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 to slow or to interfere with the development of this part of your brain. And this is a part involved in executive functions. That means the judgment, the behavioral inhibition, decision-making process, the planning, the focus. So when you take cannabis under the age of 25, you, you, you risk to, to, to cause an interference in, develop, in the development of your brain. Uh, some other things is that when you're younger, like when you're a teenager, and you, you use uh, this substance, you are at increased risk of developing, for example, depression. There are many studies that, studies that show that uh, you, the teenagers who take cannabis are, are four times more likely to experience symptoms of depression during teenage years or later in life. Uh, the, the risk of psychosis, this is a well-documented uh, risk uh, that will happen to people, especially who are already vulnerable to psychosis. For example, if you have a family member who has who has had a psychosis or a family member who is schizophrenic, so you, you, you need to be even more careful about this substance because it can trigger this, the disease, the psychotic disease earlier in life or it can trigger a psychosis. So you, this, is, this is a risk that is well documented uh, in, in many, many, many studies. And, the, and the, for example, the risk of, uh, of car crash, you know, the people who are high are more than twice more likely to be involved in a car crash than sober drivers. Uh, this is this is another risk that is well documented in studies. Let's go back for a second to just some of the things you mentioned before that, though, because one of the big issues that has been talked about with this legalization, among a few other things, I mean, they say that people shouldn't be having criminal records for small possession, and okay, we can have that discussion for sure, and they say that this is going to kill the black market and get rid of criminal elements who are trying to deal it, and okay, maybe that is true or not, but we all know also this is going to bring in huge amounts of money, potentially for the government. That's also a point that's being talked about. But what you're saying, I think, if I'm understanding correctly, is that while we may be bringing in a lot of money, we may also be creating problems that will require a lot more money to be spent into the health field to solve some of these problems. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I thought 
I thought about this book to try to prevent, first place, to prevent those problems. Because if people are misinformed and think there are no risk, you know, the government is going to have to face another another public health crisis. Uh, if, if all all these young people, for example, start taking cannabis because they believe it's really harmless and they go psychotic or they fall into addiction. So that means we need more rehab centers. The ER are more crowded. Uh, it's it's going to be another problem. So we need to be careful. That's why I even invite the government to join me in this campaign to, to create awareness about this substance. Uh, because we people need to really be informed because all all the stuff we have on in or online are going to tell them those our young people that it's completely harmless which is not true doctor so, really inv- so i'm going to jump in because we unfortunately are out of time but uh, dr antoine canamaguere uh 21 unspoken truths about marijuana you can find it i looked it up you can find it on amazon uh, you can find it other places if you are interested in this book and finding out. We didn't get through 21 of them, but you can get it in his book. A doctor, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Onward and upward to a man who will never be Prime Minister, I'm guessing, but um, but spent the day today golfing with Bobby Orr, so that's got to count for something. Don Robertson, by the way, is his name. Big hit for Bobby Orr, I'm sure. Let me tell you what. Let me tell you my lucky, the luckiest guy in Canada. Forty-two years ago, I met uh, Susie Reynolds, and I got to marry her. I think I'm the luckiest guy in Canada. See, every person is now sending me notes about meeting their wife, which is beautiful and lovely. You want to take me on on that? No, but it's just sucking up to the wives. Only let's be honest. If she wasn't listening, you would not have. Well, you might have said that. You make a good point. (laughs) But you are. You're out golfing. By the way, if the lines are ringing, let them ring. Lisa's getting to you as fast as she possibly can. You were. You were out golfing with Bobby Orr today. Bobby Orr is, and I told him tonight again, I golfed with Bobby Orr 25 or 30 years ago at Devil's Pulpit, an NHLPA event with Brian McFarland, Keith McCreary, and Don Sheardown. Keith McCreary and uh, Don aren't with us anymore. Great friends. And I, I will tell you unequivocally, Bobby Orr is the most classy guy that I've ever met as a former athlete. He takes time for everybody, and he just epitomizes how you should be being humble. As one of the greatest players to ever make the game. We're not going to get into that conversation tonight. Certainly the best defenseman never played the game. What a class act. And was that Ryan Ellis's golf tournament at uh, 240 people at Flamborough Hills today? The place was packed. The weather was perfect, and a lot of great people. But I'll tell you, Bobby Orr is, uh, as Grapes would say, is number one. So my question with that is, and I saw, I was out there today. I wrote a story about it. It's at thespec.com. I saw him working the crowd, and he did. When I say working the crowd, not in the usual way that people would. Not a politician. Doesn't no, need no, no, anything no, no. from anybody. It's it's not in a politician kind of way. I I share your view on this because I'm saying I've been to enough of these celebrity things, celebrity dinners, celebrity golf tournaments, celebrity whatever else, that I've seen an awful lot of former athletes be in the same position where you are the guy whose name is on the banner, that everybody wants to meet you. I've seen a lot of guys, and some of them do it pretty well. Some of them are terrible at it. Bobby Orr 
today, every single person he met got a handshake, got a look in the eye, got a genuine conversation, got a lot of laughs. Every person, from what I saw, every person who met him today walked away feeling like he got the Bobby Orr treatment. That was my impression of what happened. And that's what he does, and he doesn't have to do it. He doesn't have to do it. Ryan Ellis, I I had to leave before dinner, which people that know me would think that I don't, wouldn't hurt me to miss a dinner, um, told a story and and, uh, Bobby Orr was there because he he, uh, represents Ryan Ellis. The touching part of Ryan Ellis' story about all the wonderful work he does for playground equipment in the city of Hamilton and you love seeing these guys that do well give back, right? So uh, kudos to Ryan Ellis, but said the biggest moment for him was when Bobby Orr come over. Bobby Orr, after the fact, spent an hour with Ryan Ellis's grandfather. And uh, Ryan Ellis said, that might have been the highlight of my grandfather's life. And, you know, the greatest defenseman and maybe the greatest player to ever play the game, to take the time to do that, I know a couple personal stories. Jimmy Ralph is there tonight. Uh, Ralphie told me a wonderful story about uh, what uh, Bobby Orr done with his brother. And the little things, the little things in life that guys like that do that when they don't have to. So why are astonishing? Okay, so Don, let me let me ask this question then, because we know the power that former athletes, especially former superstar athletes, have. We uh, we all, there's nobody who doesn't understand. That if you are a Bobby Orr or a whomever else, that for you to take 20 seconds with somebody is vastly more impactful than you or I or anyone else that does it. We know that. That's just reality because of who you are and your fame and everything else. And since we know that, why do more athletes not do it as well or in some cases do it hardly at all? What it, it's, to me, it's not simple, but it's simple. It's not, I mean, I understand that you have to, in some cases, have some kind of personality to be able to do it, but everybody can shake a hand and look someone in the eye and say, it's really nice to meet you and and engage a person in conversation for 20 seconds. Everybody can do that. So why don't? Why don't more do it? Why don't more do it? Because they're dickheads. (laughs) Well, the reality is they, I mean, they think they've been granted the golden spoon they forget where they come from, and they're dickheads. I mean, my God, how can uh, Bobby Hall's both sons played senior hockey for me? Bobby Hall never said no to an autograph. Sign whatever you want. No cell phones back when Bobby Hall's kids were playing for me, Bobby Jr. and Blake, and but never said no. That's the easy way. Took the time to talk to you. Those guys are special. The guys that don't, that think their cucka doesn't stink and think they're God's gift of an athlete are dickheads. Because why not do that for a kid or, in Bobby Orr's case, a 75-year-old man or an 80-year-old man or a 40-year-old guy? Bobby Orr today didn't care how old you were. There were kids there. I, I golfed with a bunch of guys that were between 45 and 35. And they know all about Bobby Orr. And he's a legend. They never saw him play. It was such a thrill for those guys to get to see him. And you're right, he takes the time. If you're not, you know what? You're 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 a dickhead. 
I think I think we may have reached our CRTC maximum <laughs> on the description well, the, of what those players. Well, I've been are. in the sun all day, and I didn't. I couldn't drink because I was coming here. Now I did make an exception later on, but the reality is I can't say what I think. But you're dead on. I mean, why not be nice? My God, how much time would it take you to say hi to a guy? Here, here's the other thing that really struck me today, and I was only there for 45 minutes or so this morning before everyone set out to go golfing when everybody was showing up. And that moment when they all get to see Bobby Orr for the first time, and he's not a golden statue. I mean, but he, again, everybody knows who he was. He was the big ticket on the banner. He was the headliner. And a lot of them are, have probably told their friends, I'm playing golf with Bobby Orr tomorrow, playing golf with Bobby Orr tomorrow. So this is a big deal for them. I've seen enough athletes who either will have their people say, you can get an autograph, but it's only one autograph. Or we, I'll do autographs, but it's not a sweat. You can't have a sweater or one picture or whatever else. And it, it complicates things. More than anything, it complicates things. I don't exactly know what the reason is, why they do it, whether they think they're going to be so busy that they can't. But I saw one guy walk up with three items, and they were all signed. And one wanted the front of a Bruins shirt, a jersey, and the back of a Bruins sweater signed, both of them. And he did it, and he smiles, and he's happy. I just, I honestly, watching this today for, as I say, for half an hour, 45 minutes, thought that someone should videotape this and give a copy on a disc or by computer or whatever to every single professional athlete and say, look, now Bobby Orr played at a time when he wasn't making 10, 12, 14 million dollars a year. I'm sure he's doing fine as it is with his agency and with endorsements and everything else. Bobby Orr is not starving. All right. That's fine. But if you are a guy who is making five, six million dollars a year for a career of eight or nine or 10 years, which is who the people are who are going out to be at these events. All right. You're not, you're not the celebrity at a golf tournament. If you've played four NHL games, you're a guy who's been somebody. Or you're running the Dundas Real McCoys, but well, apparently they're really low on guys. But if you are someone who has made money, you don't need to have more. You just sign the autographs, smile for the photos. It doesn't matter what somebody asks for. I mean, look, if somebody shows up with 75 items, I think it's fair to say, what are you doing with these? Yep. But if someone shows up with three or four things that he or she wants signed, just sign them, smile, be nice, give them your attention, make them feel special. As I say, I, I, I have seen enough athletes at both ends. This was the exception. I'm not going to say who the athlete was at the other end of the spectrum, who was a superstar who I looked at and I said, what are you doing? I, I, not out loud, I mean to myself, what are you doing? Played, what, in the, played in the NBA. I'm not saying who it was. But what are you doing and why are you doing this? That was, there was someone who was clear as a bell. But I, anyway, I... I it's just, it struck me today very clearly. This is what everybody should see the example of and say, just do this. There's some things that, that I don't know, but I'll guess. Um, when you say somebody should take a video of that and uh, what they should do is t- take it and hand it to all Bob Yor's clients. And after listening to Ryan Ellis tonight talk about Bob Yor spending an hour with his grandfather, Rest assured, I think that uh, Ryan Ellis is going to be that kind of kid. I don't think that, uh, and I don't have to pump Bobby Orr's tires, nope. right? 
He runs an agency that represents a whole lot of NHL players, up-and-comers. But I'll tell you that if he, and the way he conducts himself, would rub off on a bunch of athletes, he will change every athlete that he represents. Because I assuredly, he would say, you don't say no because they're the fans. One of his That's clients. That's the bills. One of his clients. Now, Ryan is one of his clients, but another one is Connor McDavid. Connor McDavid is this generation's Bobby Orr. And I'm not, uh, you can make the case that there's only one Bobby Orr. Right? That's, not the, that's not the point I'm making. I'm saying he is the guy who is the guy. Well, it's all changed, Scott, right? Oh, of course Social it is. media, so. But he is, but he is the right. guy. Absolutely. And so you know that in 20, 30, 40 years, Connor McDavid is going to be the guy sitting at a golf tournament if they still do this kind of thing. They may have online video gaming tournaments by then. Who knows what they're going to do. But in 30 or 40 years, when Connor McDavid, McDavid is sitting there, I am hoping and I fully expect that he will have learned something from his agent about what you do. Here's what you do. And the point is, a lot of these guys will say, I don't want to do this. Why do I want to bother? That's fine. That's absolutely fine to me. But if you're going to accept the, and I don't know if Bobby Orr had a, an appearance fee today. I have no idea. Probably not. Probably not because he's the agent. He represents Ryan. He's probably doing it for his client. But if you show up for an appearance fee, you are the best possible, smiliest, friendliest, most accessible person alive. And if you don't want to be that, don't take the acceptance. Don't take the fee. And don't show up. Don't if come. you don't want to be there, don't accept it in the first place. And if you do accept it and you take the money and you do want to be there, then you better be on. That's all. I mean, and I say, I, I, it, was a, it was a brilliant example today, and I hope more athletes would do it. And you know what? There were a lot of former players and former athletes and some current athletes who were at this thing today. I hope they all saw it too. Most of them, they're there because, you know they wanted to be involved. So that's 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 good in the first place. But I hope they all see it. It's really important. It's I really there, important. I think there was an event last night in Perry Sound, or yesterday, where Walter Kresge was put into the mm-hmm. Owen Sound or Bobby Hoare or uh, Wall of Fame or Hall of Fame or whatever else. So the guy, the guy gives, and he's a legend. And you're right. There's so many that could learn so much from him, and hopefully they do. Because it'll make the world a better place. It'll make, well, yeah, yeah, and it'll and and it's a little thing. If athletes are making millions of dollars off the public, some people will take issue with this and say, no, they don't owe anyone anything. I disagree. If you're making ten or eleven or five or six million dollars off the public, yeah, you're doing it for your skills. But you know what? When it's all said and done, you do owe the public a little something and a little bit of your time and a little of your enthusiasm. Not to change today's athletes, but you know what? Bobby Orr was making those kind of dollars um, in comparison when he played. He was one of the top paid athletes yeah, in but the National not, it, Hockey League. It's not the same. It's not the, what, what, now Back then... And we well, used, I agree it's not the same, but he was still being well compensated or as well as anybody else. The, the, the key that thing that, that we're, we're probably talking about is the fact that Bobby Orr came from Perry Sound and probably went to the float shop or the local diner and had breakfast and lunch with his dad and played in the local rink, which we all know, of course, he did. It seems he never forgot that, and it's important that the guys today don't forget it. I grew up next door to a, to a Hockey Hall of Famer, 
And I know at the time, I don't know exactly what he made, but when you look now and you see, at that time, the best players in the NHL were making five, six, seven times what a professional in other lines of work were making. They were making a good amount of money. But you're now talking about the Connor McDavid's of the world are making 300, 400 times what a person in the average person is making. So what you're saying is if a lawyer was making 70 grand a year and a hockey player was making 350 grand a year. Yeah, although probably half that on both sides. Okay, but so now if a lawyer is making a million, Connor McDavid's making thirteen million. And and how many it's people? Changed. And how many You're people right. in the public are making a million? They're making forty thousand or fifty thousand, and McDavid is making thirteen million dollars. It is a different world. Bobby Orr wasn't the guy who was making that kind. Of, he made good money. I'm sure he made good money relative to the yep. time, but not money that you never have to work another day in your life again. Kind of money. Anyway, I just the point is, congrat, good for Bobby Orr. I hope a lot of other athletes, and many of them do it well. I'm not, I'm not saying none of them do, but I'm hoping all of them look at this and say that that is how you be the kind of guy that you should be when you have that platform and that stage and that opportunity. That's what you do. That's the bar. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Don, we are in the middle. Don Robertson in the studio, by the way. We are in the middle of the World Cup of Soccer. I don't know if you are watching. I am not a diehard soccer slash football fan, but the World Cup, for some reason, I get into it. I don't know if it's just the international competition or the magnitude or whatever, but I'm, I'm quite enjoying the World Cup. Like the Olympics, right? In a way. But here's my, here's my bugaboo, and it's always going to come back to this with soccer, and it's the reality, is we have seen, even in this World Cup, less, I think, but still oodles of diving and what's the word they use? Amplification or making it worse. I mean, you get touched and down you go with arms flailing and legs flying. And So the other day, Brazil is playing and Neymar, who is their big star player for Brazil, does the, oh, I've been shot thing and draws a penalty. It's going to get a penalty shot, which most of the time is a guaranteed goal, except they now have this instant replay, which we all know my feelings on instant replay. That's not the issue. They've got instant replay. They look at instant replay and they go, you dove. You're not, you're not getting a penalty. We caught you for diving. So the penalty was taken away. He doesn't get the penalty anymore. Here's the problem I have. Why would soccer not, if they're going to go to instant replay now and they're going to look at this kind of thing and they want, if they in fact want to get rid of diving, why would you not, if you are FIFA, the governing body of soccer, say, we are going to be monitoring what is going on with our instant replay and where we see you diving, we are going to be calling down to the referee on the field who is going to blow his whistle and red card you instantly. We can now tell... And if you go down and there was no contact, if you have embellished this, we are going to stop the game and we are going to kick you out of the game instantly. Don, that would stop the diving in about five minutes. You really hate instant replay, don't you? I do. But if they're going to have it, so let's use it properly. Let's use it to clear up another part of the game if we're going to have it. All right. That might be a bit of overkill. That might be, you know, killing an ant with a sledgehammer. But interesting. Would it not get rid of the diving? Well, I I don't know. 
Sure, it probably would deter it. I would think. Because remember in soccer, if you get a red card, you're playing a man down now. But rather than give them a red card and being as dramatic as you are, oh my God, throw the man out of the game. One of the other opportunities might be rather than give the offending diver, the phony, a penalty shot, give the other guys a penalty shot. Rather than throw them out of the game, just award the penalty shot the other way. That's that's is, even more. That's even harsher because that's I say that's almost a guaranteed goal in games that are being decided by one or two goals. I, I don't have a problem with that. Right, I have, so I have no I'm, problem with that. But that's even harsher than what I was suggesting. All right. So you're now you're now talking to a guy that's pro, that well, absolutely has never watched a soccer game from start to finish. So, but I did golf today with uh, a couple of Italian guys that are very much into it and very disappointed in their team. So I learned a lot more about the World Cup today than I needed to, but I don't know. I mean, I the, to banish the guy from the game, especially if he's a good player, could, you know, it may not result in a goal, but it... If, okay, let me go, let me use a different example. If you, if you had any other sport, hockey, football, baseball, whatever, and you said, look, we do have instant replay cameras now that are being, that are watching everything on this field. And if you were to fake an injury, if you were to f- dive in hockey, whatever else, you will, I mean, you're going to tell this to them ahead of the game, you will be kicked out. Do you not think that it would stop the guys from doing that? Yeah, it would. It would absolutely. And so if you're dumb enough to still do it, even after you've been warned that you will be kicked out, you're dumb enough to deserve to be kicked out. The problem is that there's, uh, the issue would be for throwing a guy out for diving is there's, you got to be a hundred percent sure. Fair enough. But we have seen, and, and I'm. Yeah, I, you're right. They, they do die. Throw them. Throw them. You know what? Throw them out. I don't care. No, but we've seen the cases where it's questionable, and that's not what I'm talking about. We've seen yeah. the ones where the guy, one player lunges, and the other guy doesn't even get touched and goes down into the barrel roll and tries to draw the foul. Those are the ones I'm talking about where it is making a complete mockery of the referee who, it's a big field. I, I, Honestly, most of the referees that are doing these games, I am applauding because it's a hard game to call. You're a long way away sometimes. It, it's a big field to have to see everything that's happening. And if you are at midfield and suddenly there's a long pass forward and you're chasing the play and there's bodies in between and suddenly a guy goes down in a heap 30 yards in front of you in the penalty area, you can't. I don't care how good you are. You can't always tell what exactly happened. You're using your best judgment. So if they're going to use this video replay, to me, let's use it to get that stuff out of the game completely. And you can do it instantly. It would be an instant repair for this for this game. Well, then why haven't they done it? I don't know. I don't know. And I assume that the part of the reason is, I, I'm only assuming for the very reason that you just alluded to. We don't really want to take the chance that Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo or Neymar or one of the best players in the game are the one who get tagged for embellishing and we have to kick them out. Well, they won't. Kerry Fraser didn't kick rescue out for high stick and Dougie Gilmore in 1993. But what if that rule had Toronto applied? Maple Stanley Cup. What if that rule had applied then? That we could, from the box, call down to Kerry Fraser at a little earpiece and say, you know what, Kerry, that was a high stick and a, and a, and a cut, so Gretzky's out. It, and you know what? With the, 
with the way TV is now that people at home can see on high definition 4K TV. Yeah. If a guy goes down and there is clearly no contact and you don't throw him out, other countries will go nuts. You, you couldn't not do it. It's just too clear. I, I'm, I think it's an absolutely clear cut way to rid the sport in many cases of the stuff you don't want. It would certainly clear it up, clean it up rather, right? I mean, it's, they're not going to, there's going to be lots of room for um, interpretation, but it would get rid of the, you're right, the carrying yeah. a guy off in a stretcher because he's got a hangnail. Well, not even that because, that, I mean, yes, that I suppose, but we're talking about, because there are guys who are going to embellish when they are knocked down, when there is contact and that, I'm not talking about that because you can't really tell. It's a sad part of the game. It's a sad part of the game, but you can't really tell. If there's a little bit of contact and the guy goes down and you can't tell if maybe he did twist his ankle, maybe he got stepped on by the guy's studs, whatever else. I'm talking about the ones where there's no contact and it's just a clear cut case of diving. Of diving. That should be instantly gone. Red card right away and you are gone. And you want to know something? It won't just prevent, it won't just force those players to not do it. Wait till the first time you're the coach and your idiot player decides, knowing what the rules are and knowing that your team is now going to be down a man, that he does that. That coach is going to lose his mind at that guy and the entire country. I mean, in in fact, maybe we shouldn't do it because some people in some countries will end up assassinating the guy. We've seen that in soccer before, but it it would stop guys from doing it. I guarantee it. So Wednesday night or on a Monday night in Hamilton, you fixed... The World Cup problem. One of them. <coughs> one of them. Uh, one of the biggest ones. One of the most Why annoying ones. Why don't they ones. listen? I don't understand. One of the most annoying ones. Uh, the only, the only, and Donna, you know what? I'm not, I, I cannot be the first person who's ever suggested this. I'm positive I'm not. I'm, in fact, well, I, I would. said, why don't they fix it? It seems simple. The answer to that question can only be that they don't want to fix it. That, I mean, there, what other answer could there be? Yeah. Good point. Yeah, no, that's right. That they don't want to fix it for whatever reason, whether it's because they like the idea that there'll be discussion or controversy or because, as I say, they're worried about who may get tossed out of a game. I don't know, but they clearly don't want to fix the problem. So the next time they talk about it being a problem, they deserve none of our attention. Let's go something back to something I know about when everybody said, you got to get rid of fighting in hockey and why doesn't NHL do anything about it? Well, they didn't do anything about it because they didn't want to. And when you want to, you fix it. When you want to, you fix it, especially when there's a very easy way. And now there's no fighting. So if your fix is accurate, then there's no diving. Like, it, it, they call it the beautiful game. Wouldn't that fix it? Look, I... Seemingly so, right? The beautiful game was a, a phrase, I believe, that was given by Pele. And when soccer is played as it should be played, it is a beautiful game. It's an absolutely beautiful game. That game on the weekend between Germany and Sweden was 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 a wonderful game with an unbelievable finish. You can't believe what happened at the end. That's stuff you could watch all day long. And then you watch other teams where it looks like you're watching the deck of a fishing boat with cod flopping around all over the place. You go, just get up. Get up. I watched the clip today. We were talking about Bobby Orr. I watched the clip today one of the times when Bobby Orr had his knee wrecked. Bobby Orr went down. His knee was demolished. He got up with the help of one of his teammates and skated off the ice with a knee that was now shredded. Here, you get t- 
touched by a guy's sleeve as he runs by and you thrash around like you just had someone put a shiv in your back. Get up, stop flopping, and play. And to the teams that do that, they make the game beautiful. To the teams that don't do that, to the teams that flop around, you just, it, it's horrible to watch. Anyway, we got to take a break. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Right now, as we speak, John Tavares, who is the premier free agent on the NHL free agent market, although it hasn't opened yet, but he's allowed to talk. As we speak, he is taking interviews with teams at his agent's office in Los Angeles. The Maple Leafs, this very moment, are in there making their pitch to throw 15 or $16 million. I, I wish I was in the position that teams were begging to put millions of dollars in my pocket. Anyway, there's five or six teams that he's with the Islanders. The Islanders stink. They've always stunk. In his entire career, he's played 24 playoff games. That's as many playoff games as I think Vegas played this year. What would you do if you were John Tavares? Well, first of all, the Islanders haven't always stunk because they won three or four Stanley Cups in a row. But in That was recent, before he was man. born. In recent memory, they've yes. always stunk. In the modern era. What would I what? What would you do if you were John Tavares? Do you stay with the team you've always known because you're loyal to them and they're going to pay you anyway? Or do you say, you know, I want to be loyal, but the clock is ticking on my life and my career and I want to win at some point and I'm going to get money no matter where I go. So I want to win. Like what trumps what? Loyalty to your team that drafted you trumps winning or winning trumps everything else? Money. Well, you're going to get money anywhere. You're yeah, going to get... But remember, I mean, every time we talk about this, I always say, you know, if you're not sure what to think about, it's the money. And um, if the money's the same and all things being equal. Now, first of all, if he has a, I don't know if Traveris is married, but if you're really happy with your setup in Long Island and you're really comfortable there, you know, he might live in a wonderful suburb and uh, have a wonderful life. But all things being equal, if athletes do tell the truth, some of which do, then you would, wouldn't you want to go where it gives you an opportunity to win if that's really what it's all about? I always love the guys that say, I'm going to go where I have the best chance to win. And then you see them sign in South Carolina because... They offered the most. They offered the most and they say, I really think we can win in South Carolina. I know there isn't a hope in hell of us ever doing well, but I'm making the most money, and that gives them the best chance to win. You would like to think that he would, because everybody's going to offer him a boatload of dough. Yeah, he's not getting. He's not on food stamps, regardless nope. of where he's. Toronto signs. will give him the greatest opportunity because if you're a Toronto Maple Leaf and you're a superstar, you can dine out on that forever. Daryl Sittler has some great promotional gigs. Rick Vive does, Wendell Clark, Dougie Gilmore. If you're a superstar in Toronto, boy, you can do really, really well. If I was Tavares and you are loyal to the island, and it sounds like he may be because we don't know what's going to happen yet, I'm saying to them, though, I'll sign your seven-year deal for whatever amount of money it is, but I demand that I have an out clause after two years, and you have two years... To prove to me, to prove to me that you're building this towards being a winner, and I, I'm not going to wait here after my 30th birthday because he's 28 right now. Yep. If by the time I'm 30, I'm not seeing solid indications that we are heading towards something positive, 
then you've had your opportunity and I'm out of here. I will give you that opportunity, but I'm out of here after two years if you can't do that. In his sole and absolute discretion. And of course, if that's what Lou Lamorello and, and uh, Barry Trotz are selling, says we're going to turn this around in two years, say, you know what, you got me. Yeah, I'll do too, but I'm out of here point. after two if but you don't. But after two years, I can go wherever I want. Somebody will pick up my contract. Yeah, I get to, well, I get to be an absolute free agent again, unrestricted free agent, or if I choose to stay, the contract is seven years long. So I can have my full money. I can have my guaranteed money if I want, or I can leave after two years, depending. I would even put the caveat on that, you know, you can, uh, that I can, my agent will find somewhere that wants to pay me and I want to go where I can win. The, pr- the thing that's is, the, truth. the thing is, if you're, if you're a player like him, you want the guaranteed money because what happens if a week into your new contract, you blow out your knee and you can never play hockey again. So no, you don't want to, you don't want to just do the two year contract because then you could be out a lot. So I no, want, but you my, want, you want the out clause. Yeah. You want the out clause. I want my seven it. years guaranteed, but I want to be able to get out of it. I can bail when I want to. I want like my if you're, if you're welching on your side of the deal, then I'm out. Now, if I'm the team. I say, you know, I can live with that, but if all of a sudden you're not making the contribution that we expect you to make that you have in the past, and you're part of the problem, you know what? Well, you got to sit here and you're going to sit here and live with us. I don't believe that. Well, yeah, I, I it, no, but if he starts scoring twelve goals a game, of course they're going to want to get rid of him. If you whatever. score twelve goals a game, you're going to be fine. Or uh, a year, <laughs> yeah, but only, but only once a year, yeah. Uh, it is, it is, it's an interesting one because John Tavares is the best free agent to come along in some time. I don't know. I mean, uh, Stamkos was pretty good. Although, the, you know, the funny thing is the Stamkos thing has not worked out nearly as well. He hasn't been nearly the player that was worth, that was for the money that they were talking about. And that's the, that's the big risk you always run. That seven year thing, eh? Like you start throwing like 75 million or a hundred million at somebody. My goodness, how can't that get into your psyche and go, you know what, I'm not going on the bike that I'm going to have another cheeseburger. It's pretty easy when you got that money to say I'm... Going to go golf with my I'm buddies, good. have a couple of pounds of wings, half a dozen Coors Lights. Life's good. Start looking like Elvis in his later years. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.